You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. By definition, as a point of reference, to get right to it, pornography as a term and a practice in an industry has been defined as, quote, explicit depiction in pictures, writing, or other material of sexual subjects or activity in a manner intended to arouse. It does not include material intended for other educational, artistic, or aesthetic purposes. And also, by another dictionary's definition, pornography is the depiction of erotic behavior as in pictures or writing intended to cause sexual excitement. Pornography, hereafter referred to as porn, is everywhere. It is the air we breathe, it is the images we see, the roads we travel, its relationships we have, it's our hearts that become so affected by it even from our earliest childhood years. Let's first of all consider the prevalence of porn. Consider how prolific porn is. It's estimated that 30% of the internet industry is made up of pornography. In a 2021 report, there are 420 million pages of pornographic content on the internet. Every second, three, over $3,000 is being spent on pornography. It is huge business. In a combined uh, global economy of porn, it ring, brings in just under $5 billion a year. Just under $3 billion of that is made in the United States. There are 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn. Every second that you sit in this room, 28,000 plus people are viewing porn every second. 40% of porn users are women. 25% of all search engine requests are porn related. That's 68 million porn requests, internet searches a day. Sadly and tragically, 116,000 searches for child pornography every day with the terms child pornography. The average age a child first sees porn themselves is 11 years old. 20% of men and 13% of women admit to looking at porn while at work. Interestingly, the least popular day of the year for looking at porn is Thanksgiving. The most popular day of the week for looking at porn is Sunday. Porn is not only common, it's accepted. In fact, even as I quote these statistics to you, it might feel, depending on your own perspective, as if I'm simply quoting about trans fat or the consumption of French fries. Some people think it's good. Other people think in moderation, it's okay. 90% of teenagers 
96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. Teenagers, young adults, ages 13 to 24, actually believe, statistically speaking, that not recycling is worse than pornography. Only 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe that pornography is wrong. Now, to be clear, pornography is not something out there. Pornography is in here, at these tables, with us, including us. 68% of church-going men view porn on a regular basis. 76% of Christian young adults, ages 18 to 24, actively search for porn. 33% of women, ages 25 and under, search for porn at least once per month. Only 13% of all Christian women say they have never watched porn. 55% of married men and 25% of married women in the church say they watch porn at least once a month. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. Yet, as common as porn is and as acceptable among so many as it is, the impact of porn is undeniable. It takes us to the consequences of porn. One Cambridge University study found that porn addicts, when doing a neurological study, resembled drug addicts in the parts of their brain with the stimuli that they began to increasingly provide for and how their body would respond accordingly. That even such porn users, that they fit the model of, quote, wanting it more, end quote, but not, quote, liking it more, end quote. Saying it differently, porn is now a new, more prevalent, and free drug. No matter the age, no matter the gender, and most are addicted. The urge to escalate the use of porn, coupled with the continued desensitization of quote-unquote regular porn, has produced an increased appetite for more deviant and cruel images and scenarios. Tragically, the younger a person is when they're initially exposed to porn, the greater the impact it had on them in subsequent years. As you can imagine, the vicious cycle manifests itself in dissatisfaction and dysfunction with intimacy in real relationships, especially marriage. When, quote, one partner comes to sex looking for self-fulfillment and the other hopes for intimate connection, end quote, you have a recipe for disaster. Some studies have shown that porn also reflects the way people approach their partners, particularly that they expect more violent, demeaning, and perverse experiences. Additionally, and tragically, according to a 2014 study, over half, specifically 56% of divorces involved one partner, at least one partner, having an obsessive interest in online porn. It is a drug, and it is destructive. Now, before I proceed further, let me just be clear in why I share all this with you. I share all this with you so that we might, I think, honestly, 
hear how commonly, tragically pervasive it is, and not simply think of it as a statistical curiosity, huh, did not know. But rather to see this problem is widespread. And it is having destructive consequences. I could spend an hour with you, each of you, who could identify its practice in your life. And if you still found that to be lackingly or unconvincingly, I would be glad to do so to show you how deeply it is affecting how you view the world around you and the people in it. The question is not, what do we think of porn? What do our peers think of porn? The question is, what does God think of it? What is God's perspective on it? Now, let me be clear, both for those present and perhaps those listening later, I am addressing this from a Christian pastoral perspective. This means I want to consider this topic based on what the Bible has to say about it. Not your mom or dad, not even myself and my opinion and its various cultural influences, but what does actually the Word of God say? For we want to know the mind of the Lord on all matters of life, including this topic that's pervasive around us. Secondly, I have a responsibility for people before the Lord, both in teaching and in caring. And this is my clarion call for some of you to wake you up and others of you to invite you in, into a community where you can be spoken to candidly and caringly. If you don't self-identify as a Christian, but nevertheless curious about the topic. After all, it might feel like a New Year's resolution. I could maybe eat less carbs and drink more water. I could maybe look at more porn and look at less porn rather than read more books. Still feel free to listen along. But understand, we want to think from a Christian perspective as Christians for those of us who are. And the Word of God is not silent on the issue. So let me give you four things that we need to understand from God's Word. First of all, we need gospel clarity. We need gospel clarity. I say this because you want to be clear about the problem. Christianity is not a pie-in-the-sky religion passed down from generations prior to simply make you feel good about yourself and wonder about the afterlife and help you look forward to some reunion with grandchildren and grandparents. Rather, it is the honest explanation of what is wrong with this place. How did we get here? And is there any hope that it's going to change? One of the things that Christianity is honest about is sexual immorality. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The Bible speaks honestly and openly about sexual deviation, abuse, and distortion. It speaks of rape, homosexuality, pornographic fantasies, voyeurism, seduction, bestiality, incest, prostitution, and others. God's Word labels sin accurately rather than teasing us with the lies of it. They're immoral or deceitful. They are shameful, and they are damned if they persist in it and do not turn to God for forgiveness through faith in Christ. 
They're not portrayed as attractive role models. They are indeed people to be repelled from. Listen to Proverbs chapter 7 as a father tells his son to be on the lookout for what's known as in Proverbs 7 and verse 5, the forbidden woman who is described as from the adulteress with her smooth words. Later, speaking candidly and honestly, a young man is told, her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. We need gospel clarity. I say that because here's the, the reality. If we don't speak honestly about sin, then we distort at best, if not completely destroy at worst, the actual solution that Christ has provided for himself on the cross. So we need gospel clarity about the problem. We also need clarity about the solution. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. We're not saved by purity alone. Why do I say this? Well, Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 15, 18, and 19, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. As a point of reference, by illustration, I had the privilege to be a student ministry pastor for a number of years to hundreds of teenagers who came from a variety of homes, Christian and non-Christian. And those who are Christian, obviously as parents, the freedom they had in this country were making various educational decisions. Should they put their kids in public school? Should they put them in private school? Should they put them in Christian private school? Should they put them in home school, which is to keep them home, not put them home, they're already home. And it's an, it's, an, it's an appreciative discussion. It has pros and cons, and I commend parents for the freedom they have in Christ to make that decision each kid, each year, case by case. But I found myself sometimes interacting with some parents talking about sort of the evils of different educational options and the people around them and their kids and the desire to seemingly keep them safe. Now, to be quite clear, I don't want to speak simplistically or reductively, reductively, but the reality was many parents wrongly thought, if I can keep them from all the bad people, they won't do bad things. And I'm having this self-talk. You want to tell them or should I tell them? Conversation with myself, of course, going like that. And I remember with some of the parents have to say, you, I totally understand and commend your desire to sort of wisely steward the parenting of your children. You are right to think of that, and quite honestly, I wish more parents would think very responsibly accordingly. But you would be naive at best and foolish at worst to think the problem solely lies out there and not in here. Inside the heart of every child and adult alike, child and parent, lies the fundamental issue. For as Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, fall witness, slander. These are what defile a person. I say this because we come to the topic of porn and sexual addiction. Let me be quite clear. We don't first need new practices. We first need a new heart. And that comes through surrendering our lives to Christ. Now, 
For some of you, you might say, well, I assume that. Friends, let's not assume that. That is the fundamental foundation of where change can begin. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel would say in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, I will give you a new heart from the, from the word of the Lord, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I mean, quite honestly, friend, my confidence in you saying no to sin is not how good my teaching is or my example or you seeing sort of the pros and cons of doing otherwise. It's that the Spirit of God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Does not mean that it's not a wandering in the wilderness from many ways with many tears, but that there is a promise. I say this because we even need to think about this as to how we think clearly about the solution. The solution is important. We need, first and foremost, a new heart. And that comes as God regenerates the sinner to see the hope in Christ, and they, in His mercy, fall on Him for the forgiveness of their sins. Too often, Christians have understandably sort of decried the evils of the world and all of its problems, only to kind of put out essentially a pharisaical religion. Only to realize you sort of traded one problem for another is so often Jesus confronted the Pharisees about being whitewashed tombs. You don't have to look at the example of Luke 18 with the publican and the, and the Pharisee, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee together at the temple as Jesus tells the parable. The Pharisee sort of thanks God that he's not like that guy over there. Jesus goes on to tell the parable, only one goes home Justified. It's the one who says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Everybody needs forgiveness, no matter the particular sins by which their forgiveness is needed, is illustrated by. So first, we need gospel clarity. Secondly, we need gospel honesty. Our culture is ambivalent about sexual immorality. People attempt to rationalize sexual immorality as normal. Many contemporary voices think of sexual behavior as not a sin, but a victimless crime. Excuse me, a victimless act. And it is simply perhaps between two, excuse me, between two consenting adults. These are lies out of the pit of hell. As Christians, we need to acknowledge the problem and commit to addressing it. I say this. Because in 2016, Barna Group and Josh McDowell published the results of a study of nearly 3,000 new interviews with United States teenagers, adults, and Protestant church leaders about their perceptions, use, and feelings about pornography. It was titled The Porn Phenomenon. Barna's survey discovered, now listen to this, that nearly 40% of quote-unquote practicing Christians who actively seek out porn feel comfortable with how much porn they use. And only a third of practicing Christian porn users say they feel a sense of guilt when they use porn. This is a sure sign to how our consciences have been seared by the world's lies and by our subsequent behavior. We need to speak honestly about each other, to each other, about the culture of sexual sins. Pastor Garrett Kell, pastor of Delray Baptist Church, 
suburb of Washington, D.C., writes, quote, as the society's moral compass turns further away from God, we must realize that informed consciences will be more rare and tactics of guilt and shame will become increasingly less effective. Rather, we should be wise to discuss the issues of culture, excuse me, the issues the culture cares about and that God cares about too. For instance, speaking about the dehumanization of pornography, the detriment to physical and emotional health, and the correlation between porn, sex trafficking, and child exploitation are all important avenues that can assist dialogue with people who have little interest in whether or not pornography pleases God. Friends, that might be true for how we interact with our non-Christian friends to try to get their attention to something sort of dismissed. But can we at least concede in this room as professing Christians that whatever God's Word says to do, we want to do. And to not do, we don't want to do. Or rather, in the words of Proverbs, we want to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And no matter how you feel about what you do, it's a question of what does God's Word say in regards to what you do? and to align our desires and our subsequent actions to the Word of God. We need not only to acknowledge the problem within our own community of Christians, we also need to address it. This gospel honesty is important. Now, let me just have a word as a sidebar, but I want the rest of you to listen for perhaps your own future as well, to comment to parents. For those of you who are parents with children still living in your home, Please do not let your children grow up and refer to this conversation in their childhood as being addressed by you to them as, quote, too little and too late, end quote. Understandably, as parents, as many of us are, that's often us simply copying and pasting the tactics our own parents use with us. But God has equipped us And a community can be an example to us of how we need to do a better job raising our kids. You should speak appropriately based on the age of the child and honestly to the heart that their their hearts are having, the challenges their hearts are having, and in humility to the problem. Too often parents have at best conceded to having the talk with their kid rather than creating a home that's marked by countless talks as you keep such a conversation on a rotation of conversations to address regularly throughout their childhood. Introduce your children to the book of Proverbs and learn from one parent who's talking to his child when he says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you through TikToks they share, through reels that they show you, through posts that they want to pass over to you, do not consent. In 2018, a study revealed that nearly 27% of teenagers received text messages, excuse me, sex text messages, and 15% of teenagers are actually sending them to each other. We need gospel honesty. Coming back now from just speaking to parents, speaking to all of us now on the area of honesty still, think about this evangelistically. Think about how if the church is silent on this issue, as it's tempted to be silent on so many 
culturally unacceptable uh, topics to address, we essentially leave people in their sins. Jesus came to set people free, but we lie to them and tell them that their prison is a palace, which is exactly what Satan tries to convince people to believe, and then they'll be lost for an eternity. But we'll have told ourselves we were their friends. And the truth is, eternity will record we were their greatest enemies. Tell them the promise of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, which says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's not just in our ability to have convictional and courageous conversation with our non-Christian friends in a dialogue of propositions and ideas, but also within our community. Think of our discipleship within Christians. We speak honestly. Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg in the 1500s, protesting the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, himself at the time a Roman Catholic priest, his first thesis read, quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, which Chris Jude just read to us today in our church service, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The Christian life is a race in the daylight of the grace of God. We're running. And it is a race, but under the light of the grace of God, we want to mature in our faith, in our repentance, our obedience, our love, our joy, our integrity, our self-denial, our hope, our humility, and every other good fruit that describes the maturity of our life, including our sexual purity. Sexual evil, like every other evil, is both thrown out by vigorously fighting against bad things, cutting off that which caused you to sin, and yet squeezed out, as David Pallison says in his article, Sex, Truth, and Scripture, by new dominating presence of good things. The vision that God has is not simply smacking your hand of saying, no, no, no. But back to the garden, he tells Adam, behold, it's all yours to enjoy. Just don't eat of this thing. For the day eat of it, you shall surely die. Too often people think, what a bad God, not giving me what I want. Friends, he is giving you everything you need and more and protecting you from that which would destroy your soul. There is no instant fix. Shall you cast out the demon of lust, as some propose? Shall you just say no as if it's some drug campaign? Shall you let go and let God as if it's some recovery program? Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Of course, there will be a quick fix for sexual immorality someday. 1 John 2 tells us this, verse 28 and following. It says, beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what he shall be, what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, <clears throat> we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's nothing in this world that you want more than to be with Christ. This is why Paul would say, absent from the body's presence of the Lord, I cannot wait to go 
saved by grace, which bears its fruit in our hearts. We are reminded of this in our desire to profess Christ and to practice accordingly. Paul says to the Romans, after explaining the powerful reality of the grace of God, in Romans chapter 4 and 5, he perceives the question of Christians like you who might be asking, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. So, we need gospel clarity. We need gospel honesty. Third, we need a gospel promise. The world teaches that desire is your destiny. If you repeatedly desire something, then it must be who you are, and you would be wrong to deny yourself that gratification. Furthermore, they would say, you should orient your identity around that desire and ask all supporting relationships to serve by supporting as actors in that drama of your life. And if they don't, that's unloving of them and you shall cast them aside. And this goes on ad infinitum. What a lie from the pit of hell. If every desire is indeed your destiny, even within yourself you have conflicting desires. We are all of sorts schizophrenic. I don't know who I am. Thankfully, Christianity teaches you who you are. You don't have to be defined by your desires and your subsequent actions, but that ironically it's not you who defines you, it's actually Christ who defines you. Christ who says in Matthew chapter 5 that he did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. Not, not one jot or tittle will pass away, but he would fulfill all of it. Christ has been perfect when you have not been. Christ has resisted when you have not. His eyes have not wandered, his heart has not lusted, and his actions have not been sinfully committed. He has been righteous. Even Satan himself can honestly testify to this, for he offered him seemingly everything there is to give that this world could offer. And Jesus said, no. It's not simply a role model, as if you were to learn a Bible verse and you too can say no. It's actually a substitute. A substitute. There is a gospel promise. Furthermore, sexual intimacy should point towards and accurately tell of a greater spiritual intimacy. You understand that there's a longing inside of every person who has that, in the words of Corinthians, burning passion of not only desire for the opposite sex, but a desire for a greater spiritual intimacy, which is the relationship of Christ and the church. When sexual experience is separated from love, it becomes a selfish pursuit that cannot ultimately be satisfied or sustained. The gift of sex is given by God in its original design to deepen the bond between a husband and a wife as a foreshadowing picture of the reality of what's already true of the relationship between Christ and the church. The satanic goal of porn is ultimately to dissolve the self-giving nature of sex and empty people's desire for intimacy and marriage. This leads to an erosion and distortion of the glorious picture of the union between Christ and his bride, the church. But we want a biblical vision for our personhood and for our marriages. You're not defined by what you do and do not do, nor are your marriages, but we want to point towards a greater picture. May I remind you of even the text I read earlier this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, after he lists off a number of things, and he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. But then listen to this promise. But you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are not ignorant or powerless or alone. Friends, we could just stop and stare at that text alone for us at Grace Church here in Miami. No one is contesting the fact that we come from sordid pasts have done things that we're even embarrassed to share with our closest of friends. God is aware of that, even if we're not ready to talk about it. But for all who have put their faith in Christ, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified, not in the name of your promise to purity, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You now know you're not powerless and you're not alone. That's a gospel promise. Fourth, we need a gospel community. Only 7% of pastors report that their church has a ministry and any type of opportunity for those who are struggling with porn. Sometimes there's a trend in churches in which we strive, even if we do talk about it, to just talk about it. <laughs> you know, we kind of move the therapist's couch to our living room. We get together, be it young or old, be it male or female, and we just simply try to normalize the struggle. We want to do that, seemingly right-hearted, to help reduce the obstacle of shame to overcome. Certainly, this type of transparency and authenticity and honesty is a virtue, but we must never lose sight of that honesty to neglect of the very sin that put Christ on the cross where hands were being pierced, nails were being driven in, sides were being speared through. We must not be making friends with sin as if, well, you too. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the innocent God-man so that we would not suffer eternal torment in hell for our sins, including lust. We need a community that's honest and helpful. Too often, Christians who start to talk only talk. Somehow as if it's like, I just feel better for letting somebody else know. But then the whole group is collectively not better off. They're seemingly left in their sins. They're not, in the words of John Owen, killing sin as he would say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. God made sex. It's his idea, not Satan, not the porn industry. It's God's. And he gave sex to us to be enjoyed. He also graciously gave us instructions in his word about how it's to be enjoyed and warnings about the dangers of misusing it. We as pastors and we as a church must not shy away from the Bible's teachings about sexuality. Discipling must be marked by humility and honesty. At our church, we want to speak about developing real relationships in which we are lovingly in each other's lives and talking about this topic and other topics. You can just think about even conversations I've had recently with some men, asking them who are married, what, what does the sexual intimacy and the frequency of that look like in your married life? Or in 1 Corinthians 7, is that door being left open and Satan's allowed to sort of walk in and sort of set up shop in your life? 
we should be having this kind of community together. A side note to those who perhaps feel like already so far in this talk, it sounds bad, but one in which you maybe cannot personally relate to. You're the exception to the rule. You're the statistical anomaly to the rest of us. I would say a few things to you. Number one, praise God. Praise God. More of us wish that that would be our story. And you can thank God that that evidence of His grace in your life is not because that you, because you're that godly. It's God, in the mystery of His grace, has allowed that to be your testimony. Secondly, please be aware of self-righteousness, which is the belief that it's what you have done that has provided for your place in this conversation. You have willed yourself. You have worked yourself. You have done enough. And as a result of that, you simply give counsel to others. It's just like, why don't you just do what I did? Just copy and paste. Plagiarize my actions. Repeat my words. Take on my behavior. You too can be free. Avoid such simplistic answers. Please understand that your experience is not everyone else's experience. While we want honesty, we also want grace. Jesus himself in John chapter 1, verse 11, was full of grace and truth. He didn't pick. He was full of both. He spoke honestly in every situation. We must be willing to do whatever it takes to obey Jesus. Hell-deserving sins that Jesus warns us to avoid should be avoided at all costs. As I've said in Colossians 3, we should be making war. We must remember that we as Christians are not our own. To all of us, I say, as sin gets more radical in its attack, we must become more radical in our warfare against it. Some of you honestly should not have a smartphone. Some of you who have a smartphone should not have social media accounts. That's not me being legalistic. That's me being, I think, pastorally wise to tell you what you need to hear that you're still not listening to. I think you know that, though. But you do not have enough self-will to make that decision. I'm saying there's things in your life that you have to be willing to cut off if it's causing you to sin. That's not my words. That's Jesus' words. Let me take a minute now and address the men and then the women. And I want both to hear me talk to the other. One, not so you can feel like I'm beating up on the other. Yeah, you get them but so that you might hear the struggle that another has and in sympathy care that you, as you hear, then your struggle later could understand, wow, there's mutuality in a struggle, though it manifests itself differently. And secondly, out of compassion to love each other. To the men, let me talk about how porn and the world has influenced you. William Struthers wrote a book titled Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain. He talks about how your brain is responding to sexual images you put before your eyes. The neural pathways set the course for the next time an erotic image is viewed. Over time, these neural paths become wider as they are repeatedly traveled with each exposure to pornography. They become the automatic pathway through which interactions with women are routed. With each lingering stare, 
pornography deepens a Grand Canyon, he says, like gorge, a Grand Canyon-like gorge in the brain through which images of women are destined to flow. Struther says this carries over into daily interactions with women as, quote, objectifying of women, looking at their parts and evaluating them as potential sexual partners has become reflexive, just instinctive. In the world, this is seen as a man is doing something as common as getting gas while he surveys every female that walks by, quickly assessing, cataloging, comparing, and perhaps later fantasizing. Now, to you Christian men, you might think you're above this because that is not your practice in such places. And I hope that to be true. I hope that you would even hear me say that and feel a sense of disgust at that, though maybe you know of that in your previous history. But before we turn the page, let's wait and consider another perspective. How many Christian men are assessing Christian women through a modified version of the same rubric? How many single Christian men are primarily and most importantly Assessing their sisters in Christ first based on how they look versus who they are as their determiner of compatibility. Such a perspective is not only self-centered because it presupposes that you're the ideal state yourself to determine who should be so lucky to be paired with you, but also dehumanizes women Christian women, to a sum of body parts and objectifies them in a PG version of who do I find attractive. You might not finish the sentence and say, who do I want to go home and have sex with? But stop and stare at that thought and ask yourself how much the world has influenced you that maybe not until right now as I say these words to you, you begin to realize that. Secondly, gentlemen, I'm concerned for many of you and how addicted some of you are to video games. Now hear me out, unless you think that this is some type of generational rant that just doesn't quite get it today, the change of technology. There's often a correlation between gaming and pornography, or at least the presence of gaming and the lack of real relationships, either with friends or with the opposite sex. Psychologists Philip Zimbardo and Nikita Duncan say in their book, quote, The Demise of Guys, Why Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It, end quote, that they must, that we might, we may lose an entire generation of men to pornography and video gaming addictions. Russell Moore, commenting on this book, writes, Satan isn't a creator, but a plagiarist. His power is parasitic, latching onto good impulses and directing them towards their own, his own purpose. God intends a man to feel the wildness of sexuality and the self-giving union with his wife. And a man is meant, when necessary, to fight for his family, his people, and for the weak and vulnerable who are being oppressed. Talking about the addictions of porn and gaming, he writes, these addictions foster the seemingly opposite vices of passivity and hyper-aggression. The porn addict becomes a lecherous loser with one flesh union 
supplanted by masturbatory isolation. The video game addict becomes a pugilistic coward with other protecting courage supplanted by aggression with no real chances of losing one's life. In both cases, one seeks the sensation of being a real lover or a real fighter, but by venting one's reproductive and adrenal glands over pixelated images, not flesh and blood for which one is responsible. Pornography promises orgasm without intimacy. Video warfare promises adrenaline without danger. The arousal that makes these so attractive is ultimately spiritual to the core of your personhood. To the ladies, a word. First, your struggle against sexual temptation, to say this before our brothers, does not make you a deviant or broken any more than it makes any other person in any other area. This, I think, has been a failure of the church and particularly beyond the church in a way that those of you who struggle in this area have a compounding problem of shame upon shame because after all, this topic is so traditionally thought of as being a guy's talk, a man's problem, not realizing how much of a difficult struggle it is for you as well. And I mean to say, with all the love I can clearly communicate to you as your pastor, I see you, I care about you, but more importantly, the Lord sees you and the Lord cares about you. And he offers himself to you. About a year and a half ago, I gave a talk in this very room to the ladies. And I, in a side topic of the larger topic of dating in Miami, I addressed a topic that I think is worth repeating to because one, a number of you were not here then, and two, it's always worth repeating because I don't know how much has actually been remembered and or heard the first time as a point of care for you. One challenge that's come from today's sexualization of society through the pornography of society is the objectifying of women. It's not as if it's not existent for men, but it's far more prevalent for women. Women are so commonly tempted Christian women, to refine their identity and how much they can compare and compete with other women based on how they present themselves. And it is a perilous exercise that seemingly even the most accomplished in beauty and accolades still struggle deeply with this uncertainty. It starts very young and it continues for decades. And sometimes even plagues ladies into their senior citizen years. I want to address this topic because I think it's important as a point of clarity and compassion for you. When I talk about the topic of modesty, it could be defined as whatever is proper, suitable, or appropriate in light of being a Christian. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with the price. Glorify God in your body. 1 Timothy 2 speaks about in verses 9 and 10 how women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. What's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. But here's often what happens. 
we come to the topic of modesty, or rather the lack thereof, it comes down to something as basic as this. Do I want to wear this? The interesting question to consider, because the this has an antecedent, this object of clothing, this presentation piece, if you will. Do I want to wear it? And what will this thing say about me? They will confirm or correct what others believe about me. I think to many of you young women, particularly, though it's not unique to young women, it's true for all women, there is a danger that the world lies to cover up. And so that's why when I speak about modesty, I put it in categories. Ignorance, insecurity, immaturity, and idolatry. Ignorance. I do not believe every example of a Christian woman being immodest has a bad motive behind it. Perhaps a person is truly ignorant because their pre-Christ perspective has so skewed them, and it's a part of discipling them into better ways of thinking and acting in a way that shows honor to the Lord, does not cause another to stumble, and reflects on the outside who they are on the inside. They are ignorant. The solution to that is with love and patience and gentleness to disciple them by older women in the faith. Secondly, as those who are struggle with insecurity. Other times, immodesty speaks loudly about someone's insecurity. A woman is insecure when feeling she has to compete with other women's bodies. It's a cultural talent show, if you will. She cannot compete in some measurement, some part of the body that seemingly falls short. So she must either accent that with, accent that with some other part of her body that would draw the attention to some other place that she's more proud of, or take matters into her own surgeon's hand to try to address it, provide for herself, believing that whatever she provides for herself aesthetically can provide for her personally and her identity. This is insecurity ad infinitum. And then there's immaturity. Sometimes women's immodesty can present itself as profoundly immature, both spiritually and relationally. It shows that a woman might not be ignorant, but she might actually be selfish. Don't be upset with her that she's more fashion-forward than the rest of you. Don't be upset with her that she's born and raised in Miami and others of you have immigrated here from some other place. It's 2023. She intends to have street credit with her peers and look like she is, well, connected. And then fourth is idolatry. Other times, men and women, I would say, can present their bodies as a trophy case of accomplishment. Either natural, what God's provided genetically or they've accomplished athletically, or synthetically, by surgical or by manufactured. Their greatest joy and their greatest care is that they look the way they want you to think of them and how they look. This is a God for them. It delivers joy and peace and hope, except it never actually does. It never actually does. Idols, God loves us enough to keep them ever satisfying. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Elizabeth Elliot in her book, Let Me Be a Woman, says, The fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian, but the fact I'm a Christian makes me a different kind of woman. Ladies, God made you a woman. Christ saved you. We want to see each other 
brothers and sisters in Christ, grow up into Christ and dress and act responsibly. Now, as a side comment, but still speaking to the ladies, let me just address what I think is true for some. Please be aware of the sexualization of the female body and your response to it. One, you try to compete with it. Two, you're discouraged by your inability to keep up with it. Three, have a disdain for those who do it with an ungodly reaction to them, which is just sometimes a form of covetousness and jealousy. Or four, understand the temptation to do it yourself, resist it by God's grace, and have compassion on those who need to do likewise. After all, Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come. So as I describe this to you, let me just remind you of what I'm speaking about here. The significance of this is we need gospel clarity, we need gospel honesty, we need a gospel promise, and we need a gospel community. My hope for us at Grace Church is that we're a church that loves each other, loves the Word, and brings those two loves together. Loves our neighbor, but does so in humility with solidarity that we can understand them and relate to them. And when it comes to transparency, what is it that I could tell you that you don't already know about me? I'm so sinful. It took the Son of God Himself to die on the cross to pay for my sins. In time, you'll just begin to learn the details of that. Does that mean everybody has equal transparency and honesty? No. There are within your community groups, within your friendships, appropriate places with people to whom you entrust. But the scriptures are clear. Confess your sin one to another so that you might pray for each other. Praying is the acknowledgement, I cannot, but God can. My words will fail, but his words will not. My friendship will falter, but his will sustain. And essentially say, the greatest gift I can give you, which is my access to God, I will spend on your good. All right. Now, coming to the end, I now transition to say the following. As a pastor, I have asked different people out of the room, uh, friends, to pray for me in this conversation today, because I have tried to navigate, albeit perhaps unsuccessfully, but so you can hear my heart, two voices, which honestly is not unique to preaching for any pastor. The voice of the prophet, in the words of King James, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. God's word has spoken. And also the voice of the priest who intercedes, who appeals, who represents, who says, I see you and I care for you. The complexity of this conversation comes out in the variety of how all of you will process it differently. Some with courage. You know what? Let's get to it. Others with despair. Wow, it's worse than I imagined. I am despondent at even the challenge in front of me. What I'm trying to say is, 
for all of the effort I could have put into trying to steward the right voice to be the prophet who preaches God's word, the priest who draws you to Christ and says, look at him. The reality is where pastors fail, Savior Jesus Christ does not. That's not a catchy line. That's a reality of what Christ is holding out for you, which says in Matthew 11, come to me all you heavy laden and burden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Part of what we've wanted to do at Grace Church is to address this, but also connect this. Address it by way of the topic, also connect it by way of various resources. We've been announcing for several weeks something we have done in previous years in different ways, and that is to continue to put the topic into the community, to discuss it, to own it, to fight together on the issue. Not with each other, but beside each other. That's why we're promoting and really making available the men's groups Saturday morning, 9 a.m., the women's groups Sunday at 6 p.m., that you would see that these are here for as a resource. We do not want you to feel like that you are alone. Just being present feels awkward, but then it feels comforting. Awkward like I have to go public. Comforting like so did somebody else. <laughs> I'm not the one who's sitting in this room. It's Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Oh, which reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has ever taken you except as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And when you are tempted, he says, he'll provide a way of escape. Part of that way is to be in community where you're no longer trying to fight alone. The second way is to make sure that you have access to good stuff. Because I'm afraid, I'm concerned that you might be looking to the wrong resources. I'll reference three. I'll leave these up here. You can come take pictures of them later. This one is actually in the lobby, though I think it keeps understandably being taken out. We run out of the copies of it, titled Help, He's Struggling with Pornography. The next one uh, by David Pallison, Sexual Addiction, Freedom from Compulsive Behavior. These are great readings to read, mark up, and even talk about with a friend. The next is Finally Free, Fighting for Purity, with the power of grace. A very gospel-centered work, which he even says at the very beginning, hey, if you're in the middle of like looking at porn right now, don't read chapter one, two, and three. Go to chapter four, deal with what it says there to get you some fighting distance, then come back to chapter one. And then as a side resource that I was reminded of, that I have, that I, I, I think it's good because it's not just reading, it's processing, it's writing, it's journaling, and it's on a little different way of addressing this, particularly for those who are married to or will one day be married to, but they're already fearing it now. What about if I'm with somebody who's struggling and I'm just overwhelmed on this topic, regardless of it in my life, or not even this topic, just life in general, and that's a topic of fear, which is the most common thing that Scripture addresses. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. It's a resource titled The Fear Factor, What Satan Doesn't Want You to Know, by Wayne and his son, Josh Mack, two pastors. What I like about this is that it includes uh, questions that you read through and process and fill out in these answers um, to the questions that he talks about here. So let me just turn to the page and you can show it to you, where, you know, after going through this section here, you would journal start to write this out, and that could be something good. I say this because if you decide you do not, you're not ready to, or you're not able to, to be at the men's and women's purity groups, but you want resource, there's resources for you, at least help get you going 
And on behalf of the elders, I'd be glad to speak with you personally and privately about this. All right. I intended and advertised this as a time where I would give a lecture on this, a message on this, whatever you want to call what I just did, but also provide a chance for Q&A. Because this is being recorded, I have to repeat the question that you asked since we're not walking around the microphone. So who would like to be the first person to ask a question? Great question. Uh, the question is, if I'm single and I'm not married, but I have sexual desires, what do I do with those desires? So I think this is a great question, and I think it's one that I wish I could speak to so many dads of teenage sons. You're not that, but stay with me here, because I think it's the same answer, which is, I think some people are trying to answer the question, does God want me to be married? It's a fair question. And I would say the answer to that without 100% accuracy, to be clear, I don't know the mind of God for every individual personally, but such desires indicate, as Corinthians describes in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, that that burning, that passion, is a God-given prompt towards marriage. So the question you're asking is, what if I have that desire, but I don't have that outlet? Well, number one, be careful to not think, because I don't have the outlet, I'm kind of like small print, void of accountability to not hand out self-control. That's not true at all. You should learn to exercise that self-control, because here's why. I want to be very clear. Self-control is not simply an issue uh, pre-marriage. It's an issue post-marriage as well. In other words, the mistake to make is, man, if I could, have, I could be married, I could, all my sexual desires would be taken care of. Not true at all. Uh, secondly, is to then ask the bigger question, which is not what I do about these desires for sex. It's what, do I, what am I doing about desires to be a man that a woman would want to marry if I was to pursue? And I think a lot of guys have disconnected sexual desires from the pursuit of biblical masculinity and their pursuit of becoming the men they need to be. The challenge has been in today's society for the last 150 plus years, the shift from agricultural to industrial society is that uh, this is the first time in these years of, of human history that you had the separation from physiological development, like you hit puberty, and marital opportunity. In other words, saying it differently, uh, there's a lot of people who mostly were married when they were teenagers. Now you have sexual development happening when it does happen, but the delay keeps happening, which is a huge problem even in the church. And this is one of the ways I think the world is so influencing the church, which is the prolonging of marriage, because there's something else you could be doing until you get married. And I'm saying men need to be more thoughtful beyond simply their occupation, their financial goals, and their personal desires of accomplishment, Am I being discipled to be the kind of man I could be that if I was to initiate and pursue a kind of woman I would want to marry, biblically, not lustfully, that, that she would receive me as somebody that would be desirous to be with? And so I would say that that's a long way to say those lustful desires need to be exercised in self-control, but then secondly, need to be a trigger towards pursuing biblical masculinity that development. All right, next question. Yeah, so to repeat the question for recording purposes, what are some potential practical methods you could implement even today to help address this? Using an example of somebody else, he's referenced another pastor who's made some practices himself. I mean, I think honestly, desires uh, thrive or starve based on whether or not they're fueled or not. So for example, if you, if you feed your eyes and subsequently your heart with the lust of the flesh, then, then that will just keep giving birth. It's not, sin is never satisfied. 
It always wants more of you. So that means kind of sometimes you'll hear this expression about bouncing your eyes. Whether that be any number of things, how I look at a person and how I linger at a person will set me up for success or failure. And so how I interact with them accordingly. It also means I need to maybe make some practical decisions on what I'm exposing myself to. So back to my earlier point, I think because it's so common, um, I think some of you should have some accountability software on your smartphones, on your computers, uh, have each other be accountability partners to that. Not because that's the silver bullet, to be clear, but those are some practical steps you can take to say, I want to, I want to basically walk through society with you next to me, even when you're not next to me, and hold me accountable to the things that I'm doing. Thirdly, I think, is the opportunity to recognize some of the things that you maybe look on, you should just change your appetite for altogether. It's like a pro and con scenario. What is it that you're willing to enjoy, but at what cost? And so I do think there's a place where as a Christian, by letter of the law and the spirit of Paul, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. So what are you willing to forego because it's costing you too much long-term? Fourth, I would say is for you to decide what's actually causing another brother to stumble. So you're now being self-aware of others. You're not just thinking selfishly of yourself. What kind of example am I setting for others around me? Would I want that? And I feel honestly as a pastor, Thank you for hiring me as a pastor uh, because thanks to you giving me a job as a pastor, I feel like I'm a better Christian because of it. And by that, I mean, I have a lot more of accountability that I would being your pastor than I would not if I was not your pastor. Now, don't be too scared by that. It doesn't mean I'd be out robbing banks and doing all kinds of you know, crazy sinful things. But there is accountability in community, especially you've got to be an example to other people to imitate. And that makes me have to think through the decisions I make that not just what I want to do, it's actually how that's going to affect somebody else. There's some brief things I would say to that. It's a great question. So let me, since you, you touched on it, let me address it. Let me respond to the question, repeat the question first. So, and this will give you a chance to see if I summarize it correctly or not. Uh, with other outlets of time being spent, like video games, which are themselves not inherently immoral like pornography is, how can we encourage such people to not spend their time so consistently and compoundingly in self-isolation? Is that what I hear you saying? All right, I just try to summarize it for the purposes of recording. So I, I think just in that question, I want to clarify the difference uh, as a starting point about pornography versus video games. Video games are not inherently immoral, okay? Pornography is inherently immoral. You, you, you can't participate in a little pornography and be okay. So I say this because the, the common theme here, as Jeremiah rightly pointed out, is that both have a common theme of basically a fantasy life outside of your real life. You're imagining a world that does not exist while you're dissatisfied and discounting the world that does exist and are not stewarding it well. So to the question being asked, I would say part of this is to recognize that that kind of lifestyle rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, and if that idea is completely self-absorbed, so for example, some people work only for their good. Like, if I could find a way to make money without working, I would, and I would not work at all. Which inherently shows, so you're really, it's really all about you. Like, life is about you, even in your work. Well, the idea, I'm highlighting that is because even the idea of rest is, I wish I didn't have to work so I could just rest more. But rest to do What? Well, the whole idea of a Sabbath rest is to rest 
in order to return back to more work, which would be under the Lord. So both points of sort of work and Sabbath rest as a principle under the Lord, but in relationship to each other in communities for the good of others around you. I say this to go back to the question then. If you're thinking about such seemingly neutral activities like internet chess, I don't know, I'm grabbing something here, solitaire with a deck of cards, video gaming, I'm saying if that has an expression for you to find conversational rest, because some of you are introverted. Like, dude, I just, I just can't do people all the time. I understand that. And or just mental relief. Like, dude, I could just watch YouTube for hours. Just like, I don't have to think. It's just right there in front of me. But you do that to the point where it's not return, it's returned well beyond rest. It's now become self-indulgent. You're doing so and you're robbing people around your relationship. So you want to then move into community and say, how does my actual schedule show the prioritization of people? Freedom in Christ. The Bible doesn't tell you what your calendar should look like. But how am I using these things appropriately as a point of being able to serve others? Porn never serves anybody but yourself. And it's fueled by low-grade discontentment with what God has not given you and a lust for what he uh, excuse me, discontent with what he has given you, unless for what he's not given you, and it's a imaginary life you're trying to live. It's basically shaking your fist at God saying, I'm mad you didn't give me what I want, so I'm gonna go get it myself. Man, you could just rinse and repeat that throughout scriptures. All right, next question. The question is, what if I'm in a line of work? This is what I do. These are the people I'm with, where my industry teeters between good and not good, godly, ungodly, worldly, sinful, wise, unwise. How do I navigate that space? Uh, there are people, for example, who ask the same question in all kinds of industry, like marketing, for example. Depending on the advertising agency you're with, you're like, I, I just don't know. Or sometimes finance, the ethics being used behind that. It just, it's a common question about a Christian's ethics and how they conscientiously interact in this space. The part you're asking about is distinctly leans that way under the form of beauty, under the form of natural, under the form of, of transparency is the art form of the immodest body. I say immodest, it's my word, not their world, not their word. I would say anything that you are knowingly doing that is a continuation of those worldly lusts of the flesh, lusts of the eyes and the boastful part of life, you want to turn from that, even if it costs you a different industry. Like be willing... I'm not saying to do this, by the way, but I'm saying I would, I would trade my career for another career if my career, I couldn't find an outlet except to consistently go against my conscience of what it's causing people to do or me to do. The details of it specifically that apply to you or any one of you in your, in your line of work would have to be worked out in more specifics, lest my principled counsel become too overbearing and commanding. So I do think there is an intersection between conscience, audited by the Word of God, worked out in the conversation of community of Christians to decide what is best to do. And I do think in the context of art, because uh, in today's world, not all art, and I love art, not all art, a lot of art is basically trying to put a value system forward, not of beauty, but of, um, of sinfulness under the banner of art. And art just becomes a veneer word to cover up worldly ideology, um, which honestly is how you're having this gigantic debate in so many 
school districts, other places around the country, is they're trying to put another label on it to cover up what is so obviously in any other context wrong, immoral, and should not be done by them, by their kids, or their grandkids. But we put a virtue on it somehow, like as if that's a get out of accountability card. And when we as Christians become aware of that, and honestly, to a lot of us as Christians, you're like, I didn't know what I didn't know, but as I got discipled, now I know, and now knowing I probably need to make a different decision. And those details just have to be talked with pastors. So, good question. That's a great question. So the question is, what if somebody came and confides in you about a challenge they're having, but that challenge, because of your inexperience or ignorance, you're like, you love them, you want to help them, but you're not sure what to do for them. It's a great question. Um, I would say, one, commend them for trusting you enough with this. That is a relational exchange of what I have, I give to you. They're not just giving you information, they're giving you reputation. They're saying, I care more about getting help than preserving my former reputation in your eyes. Because now I'm willing to trade that you actually might think less of me now that you know this about me. And you wanted to say, thank you so very much for entrusting me with this. Secondly, very, very importantly, you need to treat that trust very responsibly. What that means is that we don't gossip, we don't talk about each other, because the minute people begin to think their problem becomes a public conversation, they shut down immediately. And even at times, a lot of times, just leave the church altogether. Because the sin of one becomes a sin of the all by, by association. Thirdly, then, is to be able to say to them, listen, I would love to help you as best as possible. But what I don't want to do is simply say to you, I can't do that, so let me point you to somebody who can. Instead, what I'd love to do, if you'd let me, can I be a part of this conversation with you with X person that I'd love to go talk to with you? And I'm not going to say to them, hey, they got a problem, fix them. I'm going to say to them, hey, they commendably entrusted me with this opportunity, but I don't know that I'm best helping them as best I can. Can you teach me how to help them? And we can learn together. Now both parties are learning. That can be an older woman in the faith. That can be one of the pastors or elders here. The point here is what you don't want to do, and a lot of people do this in church. Again, I think, you, I think you're right-hearted. I think you're wrong-headed. I'm trying to correct that, which is, hey, Eric, we got a problem over here. Hey, Eric, a problem over here. Hey, Chris, a problem over here. Like, okay, I, I, I'm sure that's true, but God has brought that person to you. This is what we're learning in Instruments Redeemer's Hands, right? Love, no speak, do. So the idea is like, how can I help equip you to help that person so that not only when that person's helped and they're helped, they can help some of us, but you now feel better equipped to help somebody else who comes to you. So we want to just diversify because God gave you the word of God and he gave you the spirit of God and you got the community to care for you. So both parties are in together. It becomes beautiful in that sense. So let me repeat the question and then I'll do my best to answer it. So the, the question is, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, uh, flee, sexual, uh, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin as a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person uh, sins against his own body. So the question is, okay, I know it says that. What do, how do I actually functionally pull that off? We've got a couple of things which we can see kind of bringing the whole counsel of God to bear on the question, because it's a good question. Um, and I do think 
Part of the answer is already what you're sharing, which is to recognize by conscience conviction, what I'm doing is wrong and I don't want to do it. I want to, in some sense, remove myself from the place of temptation. So parentally, meaning I was a parent to three kids, you in our house, you were not allowed to have technology in bedrooms or bathrooms because uh, that's when all the trouble happens. Later on, when it wasn't a choice, the computer was on facing the doorway and the door was always open. In other words, and that point I'm trying to make is using uh, Potiphar's wife with Joseph as an example, when you're in a place of temptation that you can physically remove yourself from it, do that. Um, and so for some of you, that literally means like get out of where you are uh, and some people keep putting themselves in a repeating place of temptation. The other thing that you see in Psalm 119 verse 11, where David, the, the psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there's a place to be memorizing scripture so that you can continue to have that inform your conscience. A good friend of Danelle's and mine uh, used to memorize scripture like books of the Bible, like crazy like that. She was a former actress in Broadway. She could memorize lots of lines. I remember the line she said one time was that the problem with memorizing some scripture is she can no longer enjoy sin like she used to. Obviously, she said that tongue-in-cheek, but that idea, like, it, it just it was so on her conscience. It just kept coming up, kept coming up, coming up. Um, you can't underestimate that. The, the third is to recognize, in the, in, the, in the significance of what you can see, for example, in, in James, the idea of resisting the devil and he will flee from you, is to pray for God to work in you, having removed yourself from that place, physically perhaps, bringing the word to bear, but then, I think at times, reaching out to other people to help. I have had... Uh, I have had some people text me regularly, hey, I'm going to bed now, phone is in another place, I'm good, no porn tonight. Next day, same exact thing, where there's like, I just can't get very far in my pursuit of sin without accountability. And so I say this because I'm giving four off the top of my head quick ideas, hopefully scripturally informed, but for you to realize it's not one thing, it's a whole host of things brought to bear uh, what does it mean to flee sexual immorality? And part of what you see in Colossians, verses 5 to 11, is he is talking about fleeing sexual sin, fleeing all these other things, putting off the deeds of the flesh, he says in Colossians 3, verse 5. But part of the solution is in verse 12 and following. He says, then, beloved, as God's chosen ones, put on then. And so it's as much about what you're putting in its place, which goes back to Jeremiah's question about self-isolation almost always eventually leads to your demise. Spiritually, ethically, immorally, you are not your greatest asset for very long. Which is why I always tell singles, don't live by yourself. Seriously. I mean, don't, I, don't, I don't think singles... Now, I got no Bible verse for that. I'm just giving kind of prudential wisdom here. Some of you know this, because I've told you, it's like, you should go live together. Like, I like myself. Like, I know, that just makes you more selfish, though. Your future spouse would not appreciate that. Your future spouse will appreciate you having a bunch of roommates. Anyway, all right, Justin, the, the idea you see, the biblical precedent, what you see is that God and his creating of male and female created an order for an orientation of responsibility in the relationship. And that is seen both in the church and in the home. It is not differing in dignity. It is differing in responsibility. 
the man is to be a leader shown by his own ability to initiate. I tragically, on behalf of many Christian sisters, lament that men are not initiating towards the women. I don't want to be simplistic. I think there's a number of factors of why that might be what it is. Each one is a case-by-case basis. But I do think Christian men need to, in a peer group of friendship, get to know their Christian sisters, not so they can just see them as potential spouses, sisters they can learn from and serve and benefit from, but then as a result of that, begin to initiate potentially more intentional pursuit of an individual woman. Too often, Christian women feel a sense of rejection. While the man is fearing potential rejection, she feels it ongoingly because she's never pursued. And the reason for that for some men is because they don't like risk which is a sign of not being a man. A lack of responsibility is a desire to protect your self-preservation, either reputation or area of, and I'm saying, then, then you're, not ready to be a, you're not ready to be a husband then. Which goes back to, but are you struggling with lust? Well, then you should, be, you should double down on that and address that issue. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.